Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. The NYU network is expansive, and our alumni have an array of unique experiences. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We're excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of All in a Day's Work. My name is Sean Merchant, and I'm thrilled to be speaking with Elliot Kay, the former chairman of the Consumer Product Safety Commission under President Obama. Elliot, or should I say Chairman Kay, <laughs> thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Sean. Elliot definitely works, and it's really a pleasure to be here. Um, well, to start, will you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you know, who you are and, and, and what you currently do and what you've done? Sure. I've spent most of my life in government. I've worked in all three branches of the federal government. been very fortunate to be able to do that. After my first tour, which was on Capitol Hill, working for three different members of the House of Representatives, I actually decided that to stay in public service, I really needed to enhance my skill set. So I wanted to get a law degree. And I ended up at NYU, where I was so fortunate to be able to study. And then that was a springboard to not only a legal career, but a legal career that was uh, enmeshed with my government work. And so uh, just a tremendous opportunity to step back in my early 30s and enhance my education and resume my work. Yeah, that's that's great. And it's uh, I feel like interesting to go after having that work experience under your belt already. Can you yeah. share a little bit more about your experience getting your JD at NYU and anything that specifically helped you get to where you are now? Yeah, and to your point about the timing of it, I think for me, from the first day I was in kindergarten, I looked at the clock and I said, I got to get out of here. And so school was not something I really wanted to spend my time doing. I was eager to just get out and live life. But over the course of my 20s, I felt like, again, I needed to to really go back to school and learn something that was going to give me a leg up. And NYU was where I focused early on of wanting to be just because of its reputation academically. It was everything I hoped for and more. That's great. And so, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I know you've had several kind of higher profile roles, but my understanding is shortly after you graduated, you kind of broke through as a as a household name when you were representing Thalifut Yankine. Yeah. So I was, uh, after I graduated NYU, I actually had been, I was offered a clerkship, a federal clerkship for a district court judge in the Eastern District of New York, which is in Brooklyn. But the clerkship was for a year after I graduated. So I needed something to do in that interim year. And I actually went to the NYU Law Placement Office, and they were super helpful in lining me up with a firm job. I knew that my time at our law firm was going to be heavy and pro bono. So early on, I was put in touch with Legal Aid, the Legal Aid Society of New York. When Mr. Yankine was a child, he left, the, he escaped from the Ivory Coast left being in combat, he'd been conscripted as a child, uh, was uh, able to get out through some help from his mom and a friend of his family, and was sent to the United States, where when he landed at JFK in broken English, he said he wanted to make refugee. 
And so he was ultimately incarcerated because that's obviously what happens to a lot of people who come in uh, without documentation. And somehow legal aid became aware of his case and they called me and asked if I would be willing to take his case. And absolutely, you know, that's the kind of case that you go to law school for to try to make a real difference and help somebody in a situation like that. I mean, that's fascinating. Obviously, a lot of your career prepared you to to take on a case like that. Was there anything that made you, I guess, drawn to taking that on and feeling like you were able to take it on? Well, I do feel like the legal education that I received at NYU was definitely well-rounded and oriented toward trying to help people as quickly as possible. And so I felt totally prepared. Between that and my prior government experience and just some of the matters that I worked on on Capitol Hill, I felt comfortable taking on a case like that as much as possible. I mean, you're talking about a former child soldier who had severe PTSD, who had been on the battlefield not that long prior to me meeting him, uh, and who, as, as an attorney, there are some cases you work on where it's just really dry and you're dealing with a lot of paper. This is the opposite. You're dealing with the human being who was extremely damaged, uh, frightened, didn't speak English in the beginning, still a child who's under 18 at the time. Uh, and we really didn't know ultimately what where, what his mental state would turn out to be. He really just needed a family, he needed therapy, and, and he needed love and support. It was definitely a, a full-service uh, effort to try to provide him with everything that he needed. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, and, you know, I'm really interested in in like career shifts and I know you've had several throughout your career. Remember, yes, yes. Um, and so going from, you know, cases like that to then joining the Consumer Product Safety Commission, uh, what did that look like and, and how did you know you were ready to make that shift? Well, you know, life has a funny way of sort of doing uh, what you need done, not necessarily often what you want done. And that's really been the story of my career. And so the Obama campaign in 08 came up and a friend of mine from Capitol Hill was picked to run voter protection. So basically making sure that people had access to vote for this. He was in charge of the state of Ohio. There was a lot of attention placed legally for the Democratic Party on, on Ohio. And so he asked me if I wanted to come out and join him. So I ended up out there, spent the last few months before the general election, and I ran voter protection in the Cleveland area in Cuyahoga County. And our job was to troubleshoot every possible legal issue that could arise to protect the vote. And we had a team of Ohio lawyers who were on standby to run into federal court and sue if they needed to. And that really, that experience and the being part of the Obama campaign in 08, it it reinvigorated my sense that I really needed to get back into government and public service. And so just by strange coincidence, a friend of mine had gone to the Consumer Product Safety Commission and she called me up and said that the chair at the time was looking for somebody to join her staff. Would I be interested in it? And I went and interviewed and I was interested in it. It was a political appointment. I was in the Obama administration, had young kids at the time. The work was very relevant. And so I ended up on her staff, and lo and behold, I ended up as her replacement after she stepped down. I want to pick up on, you know, I know you you said you had young kids at a time, and I know kind of one of your your legacies 
during your time at the CPSC was focusing on products that were hazardous to children. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so safety and product safety is really about risk assessment. And risk assessment is about how much one understands about their environment. And so children often are not either given all the information to make decisions or, of course, are not in a position to judge risk for themselves. And so they find themselves, unfortunately, having to bear a level of risk when it comes to safety that they don't really have agency or ownership over that choice. Uh, I mean, I'll just give you one example. From a chronic exposure standpoint is chemicals. There's so many chemicals that provide so many economic and utilitarian benefits to our products, but there's a really big downside in that they leach the chemicals, you know, there's exposure to those chemicals. Children are much more vulnerable from a health perspective than ad adults are. And so whether you're talking about flame retardants and couches or uh, phthalates, which is a plasticizer that makes plastic soft in a lot of different products, Children touch those products, they lick those products, they touch their fingers, what have you. And over time, that chemical exposure can have a significant negative impact on them. So I felt like it was my job as, in essence, the nation's top safety official to really look out for those parts of the population that did not have an ability to protect themselves. And there were a number of lingering hazards that just had continued on the market for decades, and somehow it had just become acceptable that a certain number of kids would get harmed by these products, but nobody was going to really do anything about it because those products, people liked those products, or they felt like the solution was just too difficult or too costly. And, and again, I felt like that's why I was in the job. I was put in that job to make a difference, to protect the most vulnerable people that I could, and that became my focus. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm sure having having your kids as uh, <laughs> as kind of examples of of what could go wrong and and being a, a parent helped throughout that process as well. It, it helped a, t a ton. I I have two boys, and at that time, as mentioned, they were much younger, but the personalities were so different too. So I almost had my own consumer product lab in my house where I could see how people interact differently with yeah. consumers. So my older son was like a regulator in training. He would read warning labels where my, whereas my younger son was like the reason that, you know, there had to be a safety agency because his, the, what he would do with products and how he would access them was just at a much higher risk level than my older son. So it was fascinating to see. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, and I know you, you worked on so many things during your time there, but as a football fan, another one that interests me is kind of your work with the NFL on on helmets and brain safety, which I know is still, uh, still super relevant. Um, can you talk a little bit about that work? Yeah, it's hard to do justice to that topic uh, in understandably a short period of time, and I'll do my best. But it is, as you mentioned, Sean, it's an ongoing issue. And it touches on some of the things I was saying, whereas children are playing sports, often because their parents started them in sports. We want kids playing sports. They should be playing sports. There's a ton of benefits. Both my kids have played sports. Um, but they have to come out of it better people and stronger people and healthier people than they go into it. And the one area that I think there is the, there should continue to be concern is the impact on their brains, especially in sports where there's repetitive trauma to the brain. 
And so it was counterintuitive for a product safety agency to start looking at this because at the end of the day, a helmet cannot be made to be concussion proof. You cannot design out concussions with a helmet. And I'll just give a good example of that. If you take an egg, you can put all the bubble wrap that you want around that egg and you can drop it and prevent that shell from cracking. But if you shake it, even with the bubble wrap, you cannot prevent the yolk from banging around on the inside of the shell. There's nothing you can do to that egg to prevent that from the outside. That's the same thing with your brain and your skull and a helmet. So the answer is really changing the way brains are impacted in sports and lessening the trauma to the brain. And so what we ended up doing was together with the then head of the Centers for Disease Control, Tom Frieden, we asked the commissioners of all five of the major sports leagues, so the NFL, NBA, MLB, hockey, and soccer, to meet with us in New York. For the first time, really, they had ever gotten together for a summit of that nature. And we presented the data to them and asked them to really come together as five leagues to make a difference, to start to change the culture of youth sports in particular, to use the influence that they have and the platforms that they have. So if you were watching on TV or you were at a game, any way you interacted with those sports, you would get a very similar message as a parent or a coach or a player about the importance of brain safety. Unfortunately, it was just one of those things that the election of 2016 intervened and uh, plans changed because after the election, as was President Trump's right, I was taken out of the chair slot and I wasn't able to pursue that with those leagues. And it's unfortunate because I feel like we've missed a moment in time here uh, to really change that culture. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, and, and picking up on that, right, working in a role where an election can can change your employment status um, how did that impact how you were approaching these decisions? And I guess what challenges did that create? Obviously, it's it's difficult. Personally, it's difficult for people's families. And there's a lot of life decisions that go into that. Uh, and those come before, at the end of the day, those come before the, the professional side of it. But sure, it's it was professionally devastating, absolutely. In large part, because there are so many things that we had been working on, whether it was brain safety, new sports, chemicals, I mentioned that. There were a lot of initiatives that we felt like they're not short-term projects. They're going to require a lot of groundwork, a lot of relationship building, a lot of investment. But the payoff for consumers, were we able to see those through in a number of years, would be substantial. Do we sort of go for shorter-term victories that may be uh, less enduring uh, and a little bit shallower, or do we really just reinvest every win and every opportunity to try to build on something bigger? And in every mm -hmm. case, we we opted to try to build something bigger. And that the risk, the risk is that yeah, there are elections of consequences, as is a cliche, but true, and administrations get to pick their priorities. And there was just a tremendous difference in priorities between what we were doing and uh, what came after us. What tools do you use to try to shelter, you know, your policies from those changes as much as you can? One was to try to really get the staff of the agency invested as much in these solutions so that they would really feel like this was worth them suggesting to the to a subsequent administration. And part of it is to try to change the culture around that issue publicly. And so you create a demand, you create an expectation that uh, whatever this is 
can't be undone. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, and I feel like a lot of those are our leadership tools, kind of like get get a team on board and make sure you have buy-in on on all your projects. Yeah, and you have to be authentic. And you yeah. have to you have to be genuine with what you're trying to do and recognize just the unbelievable privilege to be in that kind of position. And I remember I'd be sitting at Dulles Airport, for instance, and I would watch young parents with strollers push their kids by and Thankfully, they were oblivious to what hazards had existed in those strollers prior to the work that the agency had done. And I felt that responsibility. And nobody should be in a public service job, especially at a senior level, if they don't truly believe in the mission and really want to make a difference. You can have different politics and different ideas of what making a difference is, but they have to really be all in and be authentic about that. Yeah, that's amazing. Talking about I guess, urgent work. I know from there you went on to work with World Central Kitchen, which uh, is doing some incredible work with feeding people in uh, disaster areas. Can you talk about that a little more? Yeah. So I wanted to continue to do something that mattered. Uh, That's just, has always been part of my ethos. And I looked around at the kind of nonprofits that were really making a difference. And I felt like World Central Kitchen was a good example of that. It was just a great fit. But I didn't anticipate how much it mattered to be on the ground and what I was learning on the ground doing the relief work itself. And there was a credibility that I ended up obtaining by having been in places. So whether I was talking to USAID or talking to people on the Hill, it just mattered that I had been on the ground. Now I, I had a bit of a of a pause while I was there and that I needed a kidney transplant. So I couldn't travel right before and I couldn't travel after. But once I I pushed very hard with the doctors at Georgetown and once they cleared me, I first went up to the to Buffalo after the top shooting and worked on that activation. Wow. Deeply, deeply meaningful. It was a block from the supermarket. Um, really had not seen anything like that before in terms of what the organization meant to the community. That was my first travel post-COVID. I'm on immunosuppressants because of the transplant. I will be for life. And so it was a bit tricky to to do that travel. But when I did it, I came back and I said to the doctors, okay, now Ukraine. And they were like, can we try something in between, between Buffalo and Ukraine? And I was like, no, I got to go. And I did. I went twice. Uh, probably not the, you know, the best way to have a kidney transplant stick and to take care of yourself, but I felt it was worth it. It it really mattered to be there, as you mentioned earlier, that urgency. And so I spent part of the summer there on two different trips. The second trip was a lot around the East and the South, sleeping in bomb shelters. It was, um, frankly harrowing and, uh, but it, but the work mattered. And I felt like I needed to, I needed to have my hands in it, but it was taking a toll. It was taking a toll on the kidney, taking a toll on my family. My older son's in his last year before college. My younger son has special needs and was in his first year of middle school. And I realized that, uh, I was basically losing myself in Ukraine and I was supposed to go back for almost all of November. And I decided that, uh, talking to my doctors, talking to my family that I needed to really just take care of myself and step back. And that's what I've done. Missed the work tremendously. So grateful I was there, but I, I was, I think I was, 
um, moving to a place health-wise that may not have been sustainable if I had kept going back. That's amazing. Thank you. And and I, I think that's such a hard thing to figure out how to do and when to do, right? And especially someone like you who who seems to be wired to to give so much of yourself, you know, to your work. Um, how how did you know like when to step back and what what tools did you use to to make that decision? You know, it was a combination of just objective information, just seeing what was happening to my kidney from the lab results. It was not moving in the right direction. So that was a piece of it. But then talking to family. I, I was hearing things from my wife and my sons about my absence that I had never heard before, even when I was running a federal agency. And it was less about the the physical absence, because I've traveled before, it was the mental absence. When I was home, I was not present. And that, that had never happened before. And part of that is the nature of the work at WCK and that there's just crises all over the world and there's something going on all the time. And I was at a very senior level in the organization and I had a lot of responsibility. And so I had to listen. I mean, basically they had to snap me out of it in essence and be like, this is not a sustainable path. And they were right. And so I think a key lesson, of course, in that is surrounding yourself with people who genuinely care about you and genuinely look out for you because none of us can do, you know, can go through life alone. We all need that. Yeah, that's great advice. And I'm glad you're, uh, you're home and, and hopefully improving and have, you know, made such an impact in, in so many other ways. It's so difficult because the zero sumness, at least for me, of trying to be the father and the husband that I want to be and that matters because as a friend of mine said recently, the only place that you're truly indispensable is with your family. Like you can be replaced in anything else you do, but not in your family. So wanting to, of course, do right by them and to be the type of person you're supposed to be, but also have a fulfilling career where you make a difference outside of the home. I find and have always found it's very, very difficult to strike that right balance. It's a constant struggle. And so even though I'm now thankfully in a good place health-wise and it's been amazing with my family, you know, I, I do want to continue to put my NYU law degree to work and continue to make a difference as much as I can and get back out there at some point, but also not lose the balance that I've been able to strike this time. Yeah. You've had such great success in your career. If you were looking back and, and telling yourself in, in college or law school, what advice would you give to, to your younger self? We talked earlier about brains in terms of brain safety and children, and maybe there's a reason I gravitated toward that during my time at CPSC. If I could talk to my younger self, I would counsel my younger self to understand my own brain a lot better. My interpretation, the reason I'm mentioning this is my interpretation of a lot of moments in life, either how I was feeling about it or what I thought was the best thing for me. If I understood why I was thinking what I was thinking or why I was feeling what I was feeling, I think I would have made, uh, maybe, maybe the decisions would have been the same, but I think I probably would have had uh, more calm associated with those decisions, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. So like understanding how our brains are wired a little better. Yeah. And why is this upsetting me or why is this concerning me or why do I think this is so important? 
Um, you know, we often get very much caught up in certain thought processes or certain beliefs. And I think having that ability to step back and to give yourself some space to look at why you're thinking something or why you're feeling something, there's just a tremendous amount of power there in that moment to not be swept up, still to move with urgency, still to, because that's always been a hallmark of my career, especially in public service, make, be decisive, make good decisions, but also just be skeptical or at least curious as to why something seems to be such a strong feeling or why something seems to, to be so much leaning in one direction. Because I find that now that I'm older and I have a little bit more perspective on that, uh, I think that I'm able to make, I think, sounder decisions and certainly decisions that I feel more comfortable with having some of that perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's really been an honor I, to speak to someone with your, your experience, and um, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Sean. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'll wrap up where I started, which just tremendous gratitude and appreciation for my time at NYU. This has been Sean Merchant with another episode of All in a Day's Work. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log into our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. Today's episode was hosted by me, Sean Merchant, with episode guest Elliot Kay. We're produced by Sarah Rosenthal and Sean Merchant and edited by Sean Merchant and Ben Barzilai. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening.